Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media, and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Rob Usnick. Rob, the ultimate renaissance man. <laughs> and how I mean uh, this is, let me give you a, an example. Army Ranger, race KOH, fishing charter captain, podcaster, and bridal fashion designer. That makes <laughs> a man a renaissance man because you're touching all the bases. So, Rob, thank you very much for coming on board and uh, and talking with us and uh, letting everybody know more about Rob. Yeah, my pleasure, Rich. It's good to talk to you. It's been a while. You know, you we used to hang out a lot back in the old Dirt Riot days and the KOH days. And and then uh, I kind of moved way out here where not a whole lot of off-roading whatsoever. So I kind of lost touch as far as like seeing everybody all the time. But yeah, it's a pleasure to be on here. And thanks for having me. Yeah, I, and I'm glad we were able to get the timing to work out and everything. Um, we've got so much to talk about. Like you said, the old days, um, racing and stuff. But before we get into those those racing days and all that, let's let's find out what makes Rob Rob. So where were you born and raised? Uh, I was actually born in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, at the time, my parents lived right across the river in Missouri. And um, so I was born in Kansas City, Kansas. And I gra- went all the way through high school living in Missouri, mostly rural. And when I graduated in 1991 from high school, a month later, I went right to Wyoming Tech and, you know, with their automotive program out in Laramie. Well, once I got out, uh, you know, the recession is in full swing and, and all that stuff. So I couldn't get a job anywhere. And, uh, you know, the first Gulf War was ending and everything was bad. So I ended up working for a moving company called Carlisle Van Lines. Okay. And I was down at Warrensburg, Missouri. That's where my, my girlfriend at the time went to college. And we, did, we were doing all these, we were moving these people on and off uh, Whiteman Air Force Base. So I'm standing there and I'm looking at these, you know, these kids who are my age and they're, they're living it up. And uh, so with nothing else to do, I, that's when I joined the Air Force in like 92. 
did four years of that as a weapons loader. I was actually a pararescue trainee, but uh, I couldn't make the cut. It ended up getting dropped. So I was a nuclear weapons uh, and conventional weapons loader on B-1 bombers. And then when the base realignment and closure came through, they realigned everything. And I went to fighter jets uh, out in Las Vegas. I was at Noah's Air Force Base. The last two years there, and I got out. And I actually got out, believe it or not, to join the army to fly Apaches. Okay. And that was all going good until I went to a special forces recruiting briefing and ended up throwing everything, putting all my cards in, you know, all my chips in the middle. And I actually went to selection, got selected, and then went back to Fort Bragg for the Q course and spent three and a half years to be a Green Beret. And then I stayed the rest of my time at Fort Bragg until I retired at 26 years. Okay. Let's, uh, Let's go, let's go back in time to those early years in Missouri. You said it's pretty rural. Um, you were still in that Kansas City area, but on the Missouri side? Yeah, we're on the Missouri side, but we, it, I was a, you know, a little bitty baby then. And then my dad was a railroader. So, you know, he retired from the railroad as an engineer. So we were kind of always moving around. And most of, most of my growing up years was, um, in rural small towns. So I ended up graduating high school in a little town called Slater, Missouri. And the population's 1300. My graduating class, like 31 people, you know, I'm talking small town. Right. So a lot of small town stuff. And, and being in those small communities, your dad with the railroad, he was gone a lot, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. So you, uh, that I'm sure you you still got to see him and everything. I mean, but it was, you know, it was almost like having a military dad, I would imagine. Yeah. It was really, really close. You know, and it's funny you say that because I was talking to my friend about it the other day is that, you know, I was moving around like a military kid, although I wasn't because nobody in my family came from the military. Um, but, you know, dad would be gone, you know, a couple days at a time running the trains around. So yeah, it was, that was, that was uh it was very similar and in a small school or towns like that was there an opportunity for you to to play sports um you know to, to stay involved or what was your thing yeah but we all had so much going on and it was small so when we all played sports like when i played football in high school you're gonna you're gonna play both sides of the ball offensive defense and at least one special team because i think at my senior year i had it was like nine seniors uh 10 juniors no sophomores whatsoever and like 15 freshmen so we were you know it was so small that you just in order to make the teams work and it was still um it wasn't it was like 12 man it wasn't our 11 man it wasn't it wasn't the small like i think even texas um five and six man yeah it's yeah seven yeah we, we we actually we didn't play that we actually played you know the full squad so it was just you know it was you were t- non-stop going but then all we did in the summertime was all, hey, I think the summer that right before I graduated high school, we put up 25,000 bales of hay. Um, we were running. I was on this little team that we just traveled around. And I can't believe I was doing that at 15, 16 years old. But um, traveling around all these little towns, like gone for four, five, six weeks at a time on these hay hauling crews, just get, hitting the field, you know, getting it out of the field, getting in the barn, you know, and then just traveling around doing this. So you were hucking bales. Oh yeah, man! The whole front of your pant legs all worn out. 
but it gave you, you were in great shape. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So then you, you, uh, spent your, your, your summers doing that or falls before jumping back into, into school. The, and you said you went to Wyotech. What made you ju- want to go into automotive? Well, you know, in those small towns, you, you, you know, none of us that really had a whole lot of cash. So we always were always working on something, dirt bikes or quads when they were coming out. Um, you know, we all had junk and, you know, so that we did a lot of working on cars and, uh, well, my best friends in high school, his older brother actually went to Wyoming tech, like 79 or 80, like we you know they were first starting off. So that's what that's what we're going to do too. And of course we had vocational school. So we did that, you know, I went to two years of their vocational school in automotive. And then, you know, I was going to go to Wyoming tech as just what we were going to do. You know, what I didn't understand at the time was just, you know, the economy aspect of it. And, you know, there just was nobody wanted to hire a punk kid, you know? Right. So then you're out of high school, you're out of Wyotech, you're working for the moving company, and you get into, you see the guys in the military and you decide to jump in. Yeah, and it's funny because even to this day, you know, you drive down the interstates, you know, I-10, I-70, I-90, whatever. And I always see Carlisle van lines and the old Roy Cork Carlisle's faces on there. And that guy was the biggest butthole in the world. But <laughs> yeah, it was because of that moving company, you know? <laughs> so when you, when you joined up the military, um, was your family surprised? Yeah, they really were. And not, not, they, they, they totally understood because, you know, there just was nothing going on. And as much as I love small towns, you know, small towns are bad if they're your small town. Does that make sense? Yes. I, I could go right back to Slater, Missouri, 65349, and there's still the same dudes sitting on the front porch that were there when I left there in 1991. You know, either you joined the military, you went to college, or you stayed right where you're at, and you're on mom and dad's front porch still drinking natural light. It's just easy to get into a rut. <laughs> now, you can go to another small town and be fine, but your small town, it's really, really hard unless you got some, you know, you're a farmer or you got a lot of, you know, stuff going on to get in that rut. So we all knew we had to leave, you know, because right. the only way you can become a farmer is if you marry into it or you inherit it, you know, because you just don't become a farmer one day, you know, and buy millions of dollars of implements and land. So for most of us, we knew we had to get out of Dodge. Right. Okay. And joining you, you joined the, now I forgot which, what order it was in. You went into the Air, the Force. Air Force first. And a yeah. weapons loader. Now, why did you why did you not make the cut? You said you didn't make the cut as a as uh, a so, medic. No, as a pararescue a PJ. Okay. And they, they selected like three of us. I, I think at the time that you could have you could volunteer and like sign up and come in as you know into their special operations. But I just one day they said, "Hey, uh, you got selected for this." So I was like, "Okay." So I go down there, and you know, I lasted a couple weeks, and then. Well, my biggest problem, Rich, was at 19 years old when I went, I, you know, I wanted to underage drink and chase girls around. So my, <laughs> I was, my, my headspace wasn't, my mind wasn't right to like handle that training because the same dive school that we were going to, I went to at 29 when I was in special forces and passed right through it. And it definitely wasn't 
you know, I wasn't any better off physically than I was, but, you know, it's all about the mind part of it. And I was in a much, much better place to endure it than I was then. Well, and I can understand that. Um, especially when you're young, the, I equate it to, to sports. There's like myself, when I would, was in high school, sports were, it was something that my friends were doing and school sports and and I was interested because that's what they did but I didn't have the mindset you know especially for like football you know it wasn't I don't think I had enough aggression to oh, yeah. to make a good can, to make the team I mean I made the team but I didn't I didn't start you know I didn't play much because I didn't have that aggression I didn't feel like I needed to get out there and and you know and hit somebody hard enough for snot bubbles and tears. You know, yeah, which there's is, no passion. You're just doing it because everybody else is doing it. I, yeah, right. totally. Yet, yet, then, yet then, you know, on the ski slopes or water skiing, you know, that was that was a passion. And so, you know, I I skied violently. Um, you know, I was a violent skier, you know, very, very forceful. Um, where I wasn't that way with football, but, you know, when I got into college – and I understood, you know, you know, rules of the jungle more. I wished I'd have been that way in high school. Yeah. You know, just because oh, yeah. of the opportunity would have been, you know, I, I would have been a better player, you know, and, and it might have opened up. It wouldn't have opened up much doors because I I didn't ever get big enough, um, you know, tall enough or, or heavy enough, you know, at least uh, to play that kind of sport. But yeah, I get it, and that and that happens in when kids go into the military too, because they're the same, you know, they're still kids. Yeah, and I, I, I think well, if I had to do over, of course, you don't know what you don't know, but you know, I think I missed out on a lot of opportunities because I didn't know what I was, I didn't know, and you know, even today, a lot of people who don't come from a military background, and I actually was a recruiter for a little bit for special forces, you know, those when when mom and dad sees these recruiters on a comp on a college campus they're not there to jerk little johnny and jane out of college and put them on the front lines they're there to keep them in school by joining the reserves or whatever and if you don't understand that it can be menacing and i with no with no military background in my family you know hell i didn't know what was going to happen am i going to join up in 1992 or whatever and be in a trench somewhere because that's all you really know because of tv right you know and and when I was a recruiter, I told people, I was like, you know, it's not what you think it is. And, you know, even as an SF guy where our job is to go, you know, do combat, it's hard to get into a firefight. And that's our only job. And it's not like, you know, our grandparents who, who went over there and fought, well, you know, like Vietnam and stuff. And before that, where, you know, you're fighting nonstop until you come home, if you come home, right. you know, no internet and all that stuff. And it's just not like that these days. So, True. and if you don't know, you don't know, you know. Right. I think the people that nowadays that get the most action are those, you know, it, it, at least in, it's, it appears to be, would be the guys that are flying the drones from outside of Vegas, you know, yeah. and they're, yeah. and they're half a world away from, you know, what they're doing. It's more like a game. It is exactly. Yeah. I, I, I just, that's, that's technology, man. And, can't beat that. Right. So then you go, uh, you go Air Force and then you decide to, you, 
you jump into the arm as an army and go into to get into the ranger program how did that how did that transition from air force to well I, I i went in i just did my regular four years and got out and then and I immediately went to the recruiter because you know by that time i'd learned a little bit about the military and like opportunities because the air force as much as i loved it you're not going to change your job you know you know i remember you remember back in the 80s and 90s the army was like be all you can be right. it really is be all you can be because you can come in as a cook you can go be a ranger. You can volunteer with special forces, pass all that stuff, go do that for a little while. You can put in a warrant officer packet and go fly helicopters. And then you can put in your master's program for the to be a physician's assistant and, and do that. There's always opportunity, whereas, you know, the Air Force, it was nothing. You know, whatever you come in as, you're pretty much going to die, retire, or get out as that same job. But So that by the time I'd been in for a little bit and talk, started talking to people, that's what I knew. Like, okay, I need to get out, join the Army. And go fly helicopters because the only way you're going to fly anything in the air force is you have to have a four-year degree and then i still don't have a four-year degree to this day right. so you know the, the army you can be you can be a warrant officer not not necessarily you don't need a four-year a four degree you know to be a warrant officer okay so that's what i was going to do and all then right. i saw i went to a special forces recruiting briefing and that's all that's all it took so so let me ask this because i have no idea my dad was in the military um I didn't do military. I was in that after Vietnam before anything else really got started. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was, it didn't make sense to go for me at that time, at that age, you know, even up to when I was 24, 25, it just didn't make sense. Even though I went and talked to the recruiters one time, it didn't make sense for me to do that. I don't think the recruiter did a very good job of explaining what the benefits would have been. Um, otherwise I probably would have done it because now I look back on it and going, wow, I missed out on, you know, the GI loan and I already had my education, so I didn't have to worry about, you know, having to get a degree, you know, and, and paying for that again. So, but when you went from, from the air force into the army, do you still have to go through like boot then? So man, so I, I knew I was going to have to. Okay. Go back to basic training because the, the Air Force does what's called basic military training, and then the Army we do basic combat training. So if you go if you if you do the Marine Corps first, then you don't have to do any other one. And if you do the Air, if you want to go to the Army from the Navy or the Air Force, then you have to go back to basic training. So when I sign up, I actually took a train to. This is crazy. They put me on a train from Warrensburg to kansas city or maybe sedalia to kansas city then they flew me to chicago or to st louis then they, i hopped on a bus to go to fort leonard wood in missouri so it was like plane trains and automobiles to, to go like literally 100 miles down the road <laughs> so so when you when you get there you, you go to what's called reception and that's when you kind of like in process and you get your issue and all your shots and all that stuff so we're sitting in this room and this drill sergeant walks in and says hey if you've spent one day in any other branch of the service get in line right here so i'm in the line and people are kind of going to the left and going to the right going to the left going to the right and i was like oh maybe you know because maybe they changed the policy and when i told her like, i did four years in the air force and that she's like get over there so i was going to the welcome to the basic training pile and i was just like oh my god i was 24 years old and i'm just like here we go again but it wasn't it wasn't that bad so you mean it wasn't that bad in which way so so in the Air Force, everything's 
we did wall locker inspections three o'clock in the morning. You did four or five a day. I think in the army, we did wall locker inspections twice. Now, both times everything got dumped over. It was a mess, but it wasn't the mental part of always worrying like where every little, the attention to detail in the air force was so, so far different from the, from the army. You know, the army was just like not quitting and being cold and being hungry versus the air force is like, okay, we're not really, you're not really gonna be cold or hungry, but, you will make sure everything is exactly how it's supposed to be and don't ever leave anything out of place because they, they'll walk up to you four o'clock in the morning, wake up, look up, airman, and you, well, open your wall locker and everything has to be perfect, you know. And the army is just like, get up and go run, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That makes sense. It was more physical, not mental. And and honestly, the Air Force's basic training was probably higher, was harder because of that fact because you're always wondering, like, you know, am I going to get, I go get in trouble for not, you know, having beer, like little whiskers in my white towel and I, you know, display, <laughs> you know, in the, ar- in the army, just, nobody cared about that. Okay. So the physical, the physical part of it though, you, did you thrive on that? Yeah, I actually did pretty good. I mean, I was, I mean, I went, I was, I went through at 24 through basic training and, you know, most of those, most of the people with me were, you know, 18, 19 out of high school. But because, you know, old man strength, man, you know how it is. Oh, yeah. I, I was, you know, I was getting it. And these kids, you know, they all looked better with their shirts off. But, you know, I, I was still like in the fast ability group running and, and you know, still maxing the PT test where they were struggling on that. Right. No, I know that I, at 24, 25, I was much stronger even at 30 than I was at 18 or 19. Yeah. Even though I was lifting weights and everything in high school, it wasn't the same kind of, of strength. Yeah. And you, you understand your body more and you start understanding like limits and, you know. Right. So then let's talk more about that Army Ranger stuff. If I remember right, you competed in the like Special Forces Olympics or whatever they call it. Well, yeah, I did Best Ranger. So basically, Special, and I'm gonna talk. I have a point here, but I gotta kind of preface it with this. No worries. So, on a special, a special forces, right? You know, they call us three time volunteers. You volunteer for the army, you volunteer for airborne school because we're all, you have to jump out of airplanes, and then of course, you volunteered for special forces training. So, when, once you once that once you get you know, the people who fall out of the bottom of that, all that process, everybody has like the same core values and standards. So everybody's, you know, everybody's a badass and it sucks because when you're with people who are badasses, you start, you don't realize that you are one because you're surrounded with excellence everywhere you look, you know? And so we have a company have dive teams, you know, we have a, a, a ruck team, we have a mountain team, we have a halo team. Each special forces company has a, a specialty. And I was on a, and I was, I went to dive school. And so I was on a dive team, which is like, you know, they're the commander's go-to team because we're idiots when we don't quit and we don't mind being miserable and we'll, you know, but when I get my dive team, everybody was a ranger except for me. And, you know, in the army, when it comes to ranger school, you know, the thing is like either you got a story or a tab, meaning you got a story on either why you didn't go or why you didn't pass, or you actually have the rangers, ranger tab. And there's two different rangers, you know, there's a ranger, uh, a, a graduate of the school, then there's actually, you know, a member of Ranger Battalion. So I always wanted to go, but 
when I was in special forces, especially the early years, 2003, 2004, five, six, seven, we were deploying so much that, you know, you're going eight months home for six. I got two little kids. I can't burn up six or, you know, three months of that four or five months that I'm off running around in the woods trying to get a ranger tab. So I didn't go to ranger school until I was 39. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, then I went the best ranger, the 30th annual best ranger, which is the dumbest thing I think I ever did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's where they're trying to kill us. So that's how I got into that part. And, and talk, let's, let's talk about that, that competition, that best ranger. So, so yeah. So, so at that point I I went to, I was trying to retire to go out West because I wanted to, I, I, the only reason I ever got into off-road racing is because I wanted to prep race cars. I, I went to TJ Flores shop. He invited us over one day and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, each car had this bay and it's torn down and all this stuff. But the only way that you can prep a desert car or any kind of race car is you better know what it takes to, you, you, you need to know what they go through. So that's the only reason I was ever doing it. Cause that's what I wanted to do. And so anyways, I wanted to retire out West. So I took that recruiting job and I was a special forces recruiter at Fort Bliss and in El Paso. And that's when you and I really started running around before, you know, because that's when you were doing the dirt riot stuff. Right. And on the way to, on, when I was moving out there, cause my wife, Kristen at the time, my ex-wife, she was in Iraq and it was me and the kids. So I had to make one trip from Fayetteville, North Carolina to El Paso. I got the kids off with grandma and grandpa, flew back, grabbed my 45 foot triple axle gooseneck and my F-250 with all the race cars in it, drove back across, picked the kids up and made it to El Paso. And I was on the, on the way out, I got promoted to E8. And my, my E7, um, I was, the job I was thinking was for, you know, an E7. So they told me I can't stay in that job. Well, I ended up being able to stay in it, but, uh, I was able to reenlist, so I took they they're offering us a pretty substantial bonus because we're losing so many senior guys in special forces to stay to twenty five. You know, so I moved all the way out there, ended up doing my three years as a recruiter, and then moved back to Fort Bragg and finished up my last six years there. But th- that's what I was moving out west to do that. You know, okay. that's the only reason I took that job to try to get as far out west as I could. And El Paso was it. Which is yeah, that was the farthest, you know, because we were driving back and forth from the East Coast, Vegas to Reno, King of the Hammers. It's a long drive, that, you know. Half your guests on there that you've had from the East, the Midwest, and East Coast. It's a long drive to Southern California. Right. What did you think of El Paso? Because I know what I think, but I only drive through it. So I moved there in 2010 or 11, and right across the border in Juarez is like the most dangerous city in the world, and El Paso is like the safest city per capita you know in the world i loved it you know we could me and kyle could rip the dirt bikes out at eight o'clock on a saturday morning rip the las cruces right out of the driveway you know have breakfast burritos i'd have a couple beers and we'd rip back and we're we're done by noon you know before it gets to ten thousand degrees i loved el paso it was just you know i, I really did like it hmm. i i don't like driving through it because the traffic just sucks yeah, it's yeah, it gets a little, and there's no yeah. way you know it doesn't have a loop around it. I mean, no, you no. The highways are getting better. You just don't hit it at the right. If you hit it at the right time, it's perfect. Yeah, and the base is beautiful. Fort Bliss is amazing. Huh. Okay. <laughs> I yeah, believe it or not, that's awesome to hear. Um, 
So then I understand that you did pretty good at that. Uh, from what I recall that you did really well at that best ranger competition. Yeah. So, so when you're a recruiter on these bases, right? Remember I'm going to these units and I'm asking these units, I give, I don't need all your, I, I don't need all your best people, I, but I do need a few of them. And in order to, you got to build rapport with the Sergeant majors, especially and to get, nobody can stop these kids from doing it, but they can make these kids life hell, you know? So you got to kind of like make it smooth and glossy. So for bliss, put, put together a best ranger competition, you know, to select, you know, the two best rangers to go represent Fort bliss and first armor division. And I had just graduated ranger school and I was like, well, you know what? I'm a part of this base. I need to make my face known. So I will, I just was going to go over there and help them set up and organize it and, you know, and be, Help out as I could because I was Ranger qualified. And I went over there the first day, they had nine people. The second meeting, there was down to seven. And then they got down to like five people. And I'm like, you know what? I'm entering this thing just to make the numbers look good. Right. Well, I messed, I messed around and got second place. <laughs> and I was, and I was going to go and represent First Armor Division, although I was a member of the Special Operations Recruiting Battalion. I was going to go and represent Fort Bliss. I thought it was a great idea and it made me a part of the base, right? And when you're trying to deal with people when you represent the base you get you know they're more likely to let you talk to formations and stuff well my battalion commander at fort bragg hurt got the news and he put a squad you know he put a stop to that and then we ended up going on our he put together his own team which is me and another guy uh to represent the sorb the special operations recruiting battalion so uh yeah so the guy i went with marcus daniels you know, he flew from, I think he was a recruiter in New York, like Fort Drum or somewhere. He flew out to El Paso because of the elevation. And we trained there for like four or five weeks before we went. But so we get there and I'm telling you, it's actually pretty funny because in the military, you know, like and when you're in airborne school, they call you airborne. When You know, like, what are you doing airborne? Like it's derogatory. Right. You know? And then you go to ranger school, you know, like, what are you doing, ranger? Like everything's so, it's so negative. Well, six months later, I'm back at Fort Benning again, and the same RIs, the ranger instructors, are calling us ranger, but it's now all of a sudden you stand up a little straighter. You know, the same person saying the same word, but it means something totally different now. Right. You know, so it was just funny being we were, we were celebrities. I think Colin Powell was the uh, was the grand marshal of the event, and you know he was there. Like it's big. You know, we got all this free stuff. That we you know like we we're treated like royalty there at the best ranger competition. But man, uh, those guys, I'm telling you, man, they were trying to kill us. <laughs> I, I've never seen, I've never, I've never, Carrie, what? How, what? You know, like it was the most ridiculous stuff you could think of and then triple it and now double the length of whatever. And it was, it was nonstop. Hour, it was, went on for three days straight. And how did you do there? So we were running, we were in the, we were in the top half, but then my ranger buddy, he couldn't make the road march and the road march, which is the cutoff uh once it once time expires they just they drop you then everybody else moves on so yeah he, he's on the side of the road he's like man i can't i just can't move my feet anymore you know and i was kind of frustrated a little bit because the dude that got first at fort bliss and i got second me and him his buddy quit on him and uh. i was like you know i told josh i was like man he's a lieutenant i was like man sir we, we should have been together but 
So I ended up getting second place in, in Fort Bliss in their best ranger. And then I think we ended up getting, I don't know, 27th place overall or tw- whatever it was. Which it was essentially was a DNF, but right. it, was, it was cool to be a part of it, you know. And and then you were you were probably the oldest guy there. Actually, it, actually not. And I, this oh, is okay. the surprising part. And it's funny you mention that. A lot of the people who do best are these old Delta Force guys that are probably I don't know high forties, low fifties. That are sergeant majors out there. Uh, they'll go through with a major or a lieutenant colonel who's, you know, 45 years old. Those guys kill it. You know, it's either those guys or the guys who come from Ranger Regiment because when, when Ranger Regiment and even the 82nd Airborne Division, for that matter, if you get selected for best Ranger, your job for a year before you go is to train. You know, oh, the rest okay. of us got jobs, you know. <laughs> I can't remember. I don't have a you're gonna give me a year to go run around. So those guys you get, but you know, of course, Delta Force, those guys are physical specimens of, of their own right. Um, but yeah, the, I was surprised at how many old dudes, of course, they're all Delta guys, but how many old dudes that were there. Now at Ranger School, I was the second oldest. There was one other there was one dude there older than me. And did he pass? Yeah, actually he recycled into my class and he was a, he was this group sergeant major for the PSYOPs group. Like this is a command sergeant major, which is, you know, an e- I, you, know, you, you can't get any higher rank than the command sergeant major. And it's like, man, his name was uh, Courtney Mavis. And so AFN, the armed forces network was there and they were, they kept doing interviews on me and Mavis. And uh, so we'd be in the patrol base and the RIs and be like, okay, Rangers, listen up. Paparazzi's here. And they hate it. Our eyes hate it because it was a training distractor. Because all of a sudden it's lights, camera, action, and they're over there interviewing me and Mavis the whole time. It was so. It was. A, it was the most surreal experience of my life. Just the whole everything. <laughs> so all those videos are on YouTube and stuff, and it's. I'm like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so, just like what's going on here. So then you, uh, you're you're racing during your military time, correct? Yeah. So other than deployments, we, we do whatever we want, you know, and especially in special forces, it's our 12 man team. We got a training calendar and you just you, you do what you want. As long as you're not going to miss a deployment or a training event, you know, you're good to go. So I, we, I would look at the schedules and then we just start planning. And, you know, the biggest thing, and, the, and listen, I, I'm definitely not the anomaly. The, the, Three quarters of the dudes who do all this stupid stuff, we rely on friends. And, you know, I leaned on friends a lot, just like everybody else does, to get us out there and back, even no matter how crappy of, you know, the showing is, because it just takes so much resources. And to come from that far away from the, you know, the East Coast, you know, and then to, to juggle the military part, that wasn't bad. And it got, that part was as bad as it was at Fort Bragg. It was a lot easier at Fort Bliss because we could zip over to Tucson for a weekend and do a dirt riot race. You know, right. or, or we could go from El Paso and one year we, we did the Parker 425 and then on a Saturday and then ran down to KLH the next week, you know, and it wasn't recruiting. There was no problem taking two weeks off to do that. Good. No problem at all. And then, then of course, we're racing. We're doing all these little practice races, these little local. These are the, they're actually pretty fun races um, right there in El Paso. I think Kyle's first desert race on his little KX100, he was 12 years old, did a 125-mile desert race on a KX100. And I think he got third place. And the funny thing is, and you're going to get a kick out of this, the, the trophies was like these little uh, printed out, 
these little printed out things and it had a little white label on it and it said third place Kyle. But the picture was like Pete Soren and like the old number two trophy truck. Like, you know, <laughs> like the Pistol Pete. <laughs> like, you know, I I'm sure most of them knew who Pistol Pete was, but it's just funny. Like they just, I don't know, they just grabbed some stock images off desert racing, you know, desert racing trucks off the internet. But I was like, dang, Kyle, you got a Pistol Pete trophy. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, but Kyle did a hundred. Then he got out, uh, he, then he got off the dirt bike and then hopped in the Rhino with me and was co-driving. Of course, he, he already knew the track. You know, 12 years old, like a bobblehead and that stupid thing. But, yeah. <laughs> but it was nice to do all those little practice, those shakedown races. Right. You know? It's nice to go do 100. Because, like, test running and stuff, we can do test running. But you can't test run the way you can, the way you do in a race. I'm not going to go out there and test run 100 miles. You know, but we're racing and it's 30 bucks to enter. You know, let's go run it hard. You know, let's shake the stuff out. And it was nice to have that ability right there, you know, in your backyard. Right. That does that does help. Because they sure didn't have that in Fayetteville, North Carolina, my friend. <laughs> so then you're 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 racing, you're still in the military, and how long did you continue racing for? Uh so you know when I built my little Suzuki buggy back in 08, 08, 07, 08, the very first race we did was at URI 4x4 cross. And then, you know, if you don't remember back, that was in Greg Stone. That was the second year. He ran this buggy off into the, the lake. Well, they had moved it the year before that. They actually ran it through the National Forest. And it was actually a pretty big deal to get the permits and stuff. And I, I finished that buggy and the night before and raced it the next day. Ended up hitting a tree and breaking it. Um, but that was the first time that little buggy raced. And I swear to you, I, I was going to Little Creek, Virginia. And I was I forgot what magazine it was back then. Crawl Magazine, probably. And they had Shannon Campbell and, you know, the KOH thing. And I was just, like, blown away. Because for us on the East Coast, it really wasn't that – 2008, it hadn't really gotten to us as much as oh, – everybody on the West Coast knew about it, right? So it was kind of like – you know, we watched it on Pirate and stuff, so we knew a little bit. But when Dave Cole said, you know, we're going to take applicants. And that's when I I actually had my laser guy cut out that. It was on that Crawl Magazine, like the page of it. It had this big King of the Hammers, like all these skulls and this emblem with the crown. And I had them print, I had my laser cutter print that out. And then that on, I put my application form in there, like a picture book and all these pictures of like this, all this junk we were building and racing and stuff. And put it in the FedEx box and dripped and shipped it off. And then, of course, you know, Dave calls. And But I was talking to Jody. Uh, I think you might have been down in Baja then, talking to Jody Everdeen. I was with, I was with Bob Rogie right. and for, for the 1000. And Jody said, he's like, brother, I was there. I was there when that box came in because they were doing the interviews for the KOH movie. Right. And he's like, Jeff Noll, and they pulled that out and said, I don't care who he is, he's in. They, they saw that big aluminum cut out of the design. <laughs> So, and then that's how I thought. So we go out there and no idea what we're getting into. I'd never seen rocks that big. And, you know, the desert, I think I had Rancho coilovers on that thing or some craziness. You know, you, you know, again, like we said earlier, you just, you don't know what you don't know. And that stuff was just so out of, out of my like scope of knowledge, um, you know, despite pirate. And if speaking of pirate, you know, I think my member number was like 3000, you know, like old school dude. 
Right. Not old, not, not old as like Lance and Cam and probably you, but definitely, you know, remember, remember 3000. Cause we, meaning I knew a lot about what was going on, but I never had put my hand on a real coil over before, you know, <laughs> it was just, it, it was just crazy. You get out there. It's like, Oh gee, I think, I think we made it 11 miles. It broke the wishbone. I had the ready welder. So we got it welded. And then, uh, 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 those big rocks, man, and it was just, I think I had 42-inch stickies on at this time, and my little Toyota axles just weren't having it. <laughs> uh, so did you race that buggy again at, at, at any point at KOH, or did, is, did you I, jump I into the UTVs? So, so, no, I raced it 09, 10, and 11. So we raced it 09, got our butts handed to us, and then I was like, all right, we, we, know, we know something now. So we went back, and then that's when we did – the the very first race I think was in May. It was up in Pennsylvania at Rouse Creek, and that's when I had to kick Billy out of the car because he was too fat, and we'd already lost one coil over, broke off. I think it was on FOAs then, which uh, maybe part of the problem. Of course, it was just rough, and that's when I rolled at the finish line, and I think Will Carter got first, but he's already qualified, and I was a eleventh. I was eleventh person, and although I was over time they came to get 10 people and I was the 10th person actually finished. And that's the whole Houston finish, you know, from, from Will Gentile and, and those guys in the video, that's what got us into 2009 okay. or 2010. And then the, I, we did a little bit better that year, but not a whole lot. Um, and then we did the, what, what do they call that? The international, they had three series going on in like 2010. And then that's how we qualified to go back in 11 and then 12, 13 of 14, I raised the, the UTVs. Right. And then I went back and dirt bike did King of the Motos in 2015, which is up there in the top five dumbest things I've ever done. <laughs> that was, uh, those were pretty wild, um, watching those starts and watching the guys just trying to drag their bikes up the hills and everything. And I went with, I went there with a, with this kid who we do hair scrambles with in North Carolina and my buddy Cassidy. And this kid can ride a dirt bike like nobody else. And I was so, we left out of there chocolate thunder at night. All right, no problem. You know, that, that, I, we made it. I think it took me four hours. I think the winter's like 24 minutes or something. So then the next morning we lined up again and went up that big, huge wall. Okay, that stuff was stupid. Well, my visor had broken off. So I'm lining up on stage three. And this is where we're going to cross all back behind school bus, like all up in that stuff. And I was like, um, is it illegal for me to race without a visor on my helmet? Like I was looking for any way for someone to perform. Someone just like, Hey, you can't run like that. All right. Okay. I'm out, man. My visor's broke. And they're like, no, you're good, dude. So I'm like, Oh, so we're running up here, running up here. And I come across Cassidy and this dude, this dude can ride a dirt bike, Rich. I mean, he is a master and he's, he has, he has his arms, you know, his forearms on the handlebars. He's leaning over. He says, Rob, I got to turn back. And I'm like, why buddy? He's like, I don't want to die today, man. I am, I, I'm, I can't get anymore. I was like, well, I ain't going back. I don't know what's in front of us, but I know what's behind us sucks. So he turned back and I just kept going. And finally I timed out on the backside, but yeah, it, that was stupid. I was so glad. And man, what was his name that formulated that? Who came up with those courses? Jimmy Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one who pulled up and said, all right, man, time's over. D- drop down to the road and head back to camp. Yes, sir. You know, <laughs> yeah, I work, with, I, I work with Jimmy every year now on the rebel rally. The guy's it's phenomenal. Sc- I was scared. Like I was scared, <laughs> you know, like scared. 
you know, you know, and then of course the good thing is you have arm pumps so bad you can't even hold on anymore. So it's just like you're throwing the bike around and like just ghost riding it up and God bless those KTMs. <laughs> That's awesome. So then KOH you get uh when did you, when did the bug hit you to to fish? So coming from Missouri you know, we all fish. You ask all those guys in the Midwest and the East Coast. I mean, it's all freshwater fishing. Most of us have farm ponds. And so I've always fished. And because our dive school is in Key West, from 2003 on, that's when I went to dive school, we were always down there. And, you know, we're training, but then we had these 26 of 30-foot center console boats that are used for dive, you know, operations. Somebody always bring tackle and we go fish. Like, okay, you know, you're out there, you catch a, a fish that would be, something they'd be proud of out of a pond you know it's you know four pounds whatever and you know it, well that's a bait fish here and it blew my mind just the bit how big it was and uh uh so i just started doing it with these guys and these guys you know all the time and i did a fishing tournament in north carolina we, we came down to ocean isle to dive and did a fishing tournament and the dude i was with him and his buddy came, it was me and my son kyle and him and his buddy came down and, and at four thirty in the morning, me and Kyle had gotten we had gotten up and we're icing the boat. They're coming in from the club. And I'm like, well, dang, I'm I would have went to the club. I thought this I thought this was serious. We paid big money to get in this thing. So get them get them in the truck, go down, put the boat in the water, and we take off. And these two dudes pass out and puke all day long and left me and my son Kyle out there trolling with all these lines and we we didn't catch we didn't catch a single fish. We trolled all the way up to the cutoff boat. When you come back into the intercoastal cutoff, comes at five o'clock, and right at like four fifty five, we got to the cutoff boat. We had to reel everything in, and woke those dudes up. We pulled in there and pulled the boat out of the water. And when those guys got out of the truck at the hotel, I looked, I told Kyle, I was like, I will never, ever, ever go through that again. We're gonna, like, I was like, we're going to figure this out. And next thing you know, we just figured it out. You know. But that's how that's what got it going, and you know, then I bought my big boat. Why not? Which took took you know, you and that you and Shelly out, and then I think who was with us that day? Who was, was that? Nick. 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 Yep. Yeah. Nick and um, his wife. Yeah, and then you know, which I still have, you know, we brought why not down here, uh, but it has been full throttle since then. And I'm telling you, man, I had I had to quit fishing down here because I did a thousand and fifty six charters in two and a half years, and you know. It is, it's waters three to five and at, you know, almost 50, I just can't do 15 hour days and get my teeth kicked in on those boats anymore. I can't, I can't deliver the product, you know? So now I'm a backup guy for them if they need help. And then I run these party boats, which is easy, breezy, beautiful, you know, hundred drunks get on here, drive them around and come right back in. It's easy. And the boat's big, like 63 feet, you know, but now I fish on my boat for fun, you know, versus doing the charter fishing where it's just, you know, it's everything has, everything's it's just so much work and the money is amazing. It's ridiculous, but it's just, it's a, it's a lot of work, you know? Right. And it, 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 we don't have, we don't have mates. So you do everything, you know, you rig the tackle, drive the boat, set the lines out. You're by yourself. So it's just, you're running every day. You're just nonstop on your feet. And doing that many, that many charters yeah. in that short of time. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, every day down here we'll do a six hour and a four hour. Then we have a one hour turn, meaning you got to come back from a six out seven to one o'clock, get back at one o'clock, or you know one fifteen or whatever it is. Clean the fish, clean the boat, 
Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you got to run over to the fuel dock, get gas. And then if you got a St. John pickup, you got a 15 minute boat ride over there to pick up those guests, do a four hour trip, get back, clean the fish, and you got to come back. I mean, it's you're running non it's, it's the most ridiculous. I've never seen boats run this much. And it's 365 days a year. Right. It is insane. It is, it is insane. So then when I was in Panama City Beach, I think we, I added it up. There's 14 weeks of charter fishing um, where you have tourists, you know, because the snowbirds come down from November to March and they're not booking charters. You know, they're stealing salt and pepper shakers in the Waffle House. <laughs> so they don't, you know, they don't have to buy it for their rental, you know, because they're on fixed income. And then the spring breakers come and they're 15 to a room drinking natural light. They're not booking charters, you know. So, so you have a couple weeks in April and then Memorial Day to the first week in August and then a couple weeks in October. And that, it adds about 14 weeks minus mechanical, minus weather. And, you know, it's not very many days to make your whole nut for the whole year. Right. And then all my buddies who are up there doing it, they'll go work someplace else in the winter, you know, Home Depot or do clean gutters or construction or whatever. And I just wanted to run boats. And down here, we run the boats. And so you uh, you moved down there. You... Uh... You were in the um, Virgin Islands. You were on the American Virgin Islands or British? Yeah, no, we're in the USVI. Uh, I'm on. I'm on St. Thomas. Okay, and I, I call it Santo Tomas because you know everybody <laughs> <laughs> wasn't really funny, but yeah, St. Thomas. So then you've uh, you've had uh, a lot. Of, some of your friends come down, guys that you raced with come down and charter or did you come yeah, it's across pretty funny yeah it's pretty funny how many people have actually been down here oh camo stayed on the boat i think camo him and heather were on the boat they lived on why not for like maybe a month last december they came down and, you know it was just it was a couple weeks or a month it was a long time and uh 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 you know uh brian shirley and those guys all came down like it was just funny how, how many people were coming down here right. not necessarily for me but they were coming down here, and luckily we got to hang out. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny, actually. It's it's how many people I've seen down. Of course, the two people that I always see anywhere, Camo and JT Taylor. I see those two dudes. I'll be in some random country somewhere, and all of a sudden JT standing there buying whatever, or deep in Mexico at some little town, Camo walks up. Hey, Rob. So it's always fun. I, no matter what, I always see JT, and I've seen JT Taylor twice here. You know, nice. and then Camo came out. So it's always. It's funny how many people have come out here. I know that Shelly and I have been wanting to come out, and we just things have just not worked out yet. But we're going to get down there. Hopefully, you'll still be there. Well, you know, it's tough for you guys on the West Coast. But I, what's crazy is when COVID – I was here right before COVID, and then we shut down from, like, uh, March 27th to the 1st of June in 2020. And when we opened back up, we were gangbusters. Normally, the summertime is our slow season. And we opened up in June, broke all-time records. July, broke all-time records. We broke all-time records for the first seven months we were back open because BVI, you know, which is four miles away, they fall under European protocols, so nobody was in and out of there. For you guys on the West Coast, you know, Hawaii wasn't necessarily closed, but it was like, come on out, stay 14 days in your room, and then after that, you can stay, in your, just stay on the property. And nobody was really going to burn up their you know, vacation for that. And then Mexico had all the weird rules and somebody's going there. So we had so many people come from Arizona, California, Oregon, Washington state, Idaho, who that part of the country does not come to St. Thomas, but we're the only show in town. And the beauty of it is there's no passport needed. And people were telling me, Rich, and I kid you not, people were telling me that their companies that they, that they worked for said, Hey, if 
if you guys go on vacation, don't leave the United States. I well, guess what? This is the United States, although it is America-ish. It's still the United States, you know. Right. So we got a lot, so many people from I call it west of the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth imaginary line that cuts the United States in half. Right. West of there, you know, you guys usually go to you know Mexico or or Hawaii, and then east of there, you know, Florida, out to here, whatever. But so many people were coming from that part of the country. You know, it was it was pretty it was pretty crazy. Sweet. Well, yeah, it was the only show in town. So, what are you doing? What are you doing there now? Um, if you're just part timing, or is uh, that enough? So, is that enough to survive? Yeah, you know, I got my retirement stuff in the military. And that's good. And then running these boats a couple days a week is good. And then you know the part everybody I'm sure is wondering the whole bridal thing. <laughs> I got my beautiful gowns right here. Yes. Uh, so. I actually got a couple of bids on that stuff going too, but that, that was more one of those things where I, I just like being able to do it for like, uh, when my daughter gets married or when like my friend, get, you know what I'm saying? It's more something like that. Not something I, making them is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And you know, my, my joke is, you know, cause I'm always making fun of, you know, Kyle, we're kind of, Kyle sent me all these pictures, you know, he's fabricating, like doing man stuff and all this stuff. Went to the fab school. He's pig welding all this crazy stuff, working on Ferraris. Uh, you know, and I'm like, well, I'm still fabricating too, buddy. I just use a sewing machine and I'm using cloth uh, or, you know, fabric. <laughs> it's a, there's a reason why these gowns take so long to make. And I'm, I've worked for like five or six weeks on these last two to get them done. And I'm talking 20 hours a day because there's a lot to them. And they mine aren't even that elaborate, you know? Um, so what started that was I've always liked the fashion industry, you know, and when I was in Milan, I actually linked up with this fashion school there and enrolled. And I did, I did two classes. I did women's lingerie and swimwear, which is kind of the same thing because swimsuits is where the money's at, man. Yeah. Yeah. They're easy to make and, and they're, you can charge whatever you want. And then of course, bridal. And then with bridal, it's not necessarily bridal gowns, all kinds of dresses too. But I was, my goal was to get two gowns to New York for bridal fashion week. And what I was trying to do was go to, get into Martha Stewart's, you know, after show or her little after party and where the, the, the gowns be on display, but that didn't work out. But yeah. So, you know, and the funny thing about the, the whole fashion industry is, it, you know, this is all new to me too, buddy. You know, like I'm just, I was blown away. The, our little, they're called fashion figures, our little drawings that we do. Right. And it's, not, and it's on a scale. Like it's the, the, from head to toe, it's a 10, like a head is one and then it's scaled down, you know, chest, bust, waist, hips, thigh, you know, all the way down. And you draw them to that scale because of the mannequins that you use uh, are, are they're, they're to that model size. And the very first assignment I did, I, I was like, I'm not going to send these little skinny model chicks who, you know, look around. That, that's not what a woman looks like. So I drew full figured women, you know, and my, with my, with my garment designs and my professor lit me up. No, we don't do that. And I was like, well, why not? So then he explained it to me. He's like, here's why. If you draw this, this, the fashion figure scale and you make this garment on this model that's based off that, you can build, you can make this garment, put it in a box, take it to London. And when the model walks in, it'll fit her or him. Does that make sense? Right. 
you can it's it's a standard it's a standard used now you can get full figured models or real skinny models or whatever but for what we do it's to that standard that industry standard where that model no matter where we're at in the country you know it, it, they can put it on right so it all made sense then okay but yeah the the bridal stuff really blows me away man and you know some of these gowns you know 25 30,000 dollars you know depending on how much you know, of the handmade stuff goes into them, but yeah, it's been pretty exciting. And, and it's definitely something that I was just totally like, you know, I've never seen the side of like what goes on, you know? And, and then the funny thing is, and you're going to kick out of this. So I go downtown, right. That's where the fabric store is. And you know, it's all West Indian, West Indian, you know, ladies in there. So I walk in and the, the, she goes, she's like, what are you doing in here, boy? I'm like, oh, I'm here to get some fabric and making dresses. He's like, oh, you need a dress. She can make you a dress. And I'm like, uh-uh. I was like, daddy can sew. So she kind of rolled her eyes. <laughs> and then the next time I went in there, give me a hard time. So now I start bringing coffee and donuts. Then I started bringing some of my stuff in. I was showing them. They are showing them pictures or whatever. And once I started getting street cred, they started helping me. Because, you know, it's kind of like welding. Oh, oh, you can weld? And then all of a sudden, you got stainless steel in front of you. Oh, all of a sudden, you got aluminum in front of you. Like, welding isn't just welding. Metal isn't just metal. And these fabrics are the same. And it got to the point now, I go down there, it's like, man, this is a really nice fabric. She's like, oh, she's like, they call me Raba. Raba, you don't want that. I was like, why not? She's like, because you're not good enough to sew it. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? She's like, brother, I've been sewing my whole life, and I have a hard time with it. And I, I get it because some of this stuff doesn't sew, doesn't go to the machine right. And you have to have years of experience or natural talent, which I don't have, to sew it, to make it look good. And they, they're teaching me all that stuff of it, too. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, so, but that that's kind of been a hard road to hoe down there with those ladies, because, man, they weren't having me down there. They did. What you doing in here, boy? You know, they just, <laughs> they didn't think a liking to me at first. <laughs> so, uh, talk about Milan. How did you end up in Milan? So, I went there uh for my girlfriend at the time's birthday we went all through italy and stuff and milan i don't know if you've ever been but milan is my favorite city in the world it 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 is so nice and the people are nice and there's so much stuff going on it's an amazing place to be and as far as fashion goes that's where that's where you want to be you know um at least in my opinion um you know there's no fashion stuff going on and you know slater missouri where i grew up (laughs) so you know that's that's what that's where it all starts and and uh, I fell in love with the city and, you know, enrolled in the course and, and, and it started off there. And then the rest of it, I could come back and do it um, here and just do the assignments. But a lot of the basic stuff, they have to make sure that we can do, you know, the sewing part of it, you know, just all the, all this involved with it, you know, pattern making, uh, the drawing, the drawing, whatever it is, you know, designing it and then making it from paper to an actual garment. And how to fit and there's you know there's all kinds of way you move the material over make darts and whatever to like folds around especially like a bust you know on a woman and the, the how the body how a woman's body is generally shaped and then how to start offsetting for you know women who have larger butts or women who are smaller chested like it's like all that stuff they teach you like how to uh, when you design it how to when it actually starts to making it how to offset for that stuff okay so you know, and how old, yeah, I, how old were you when you went to Milan? I was this this is a couple this, this summer. It was me at this when this class I was in. It was, it was me. Uh, it was all the dudes and they were gay. 
and then all the girls are like early 20s and then there's me you talk about being a minority bro i i told him that i've told him that the sun it was 83 degrees outside to be like no it's not I, no, no matter what i said i was wrong what are, you, what are you doing in here? Same thing. What are you doing in your boy? <laughs> I didn't realize that this was something that was brand new. Okay. Oh yeah. Brand new. Yeah. That's why I, I posted that, that stuff. And my dad was getting emails like, uh, I think Rob's Facebook's been hacked. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, is so many people in it. it I was on a mission too, because one thing I hate, man, is when people say, oh, you can't do that. I can't stand that. Right. And by God, I was going to get two grounds in New York City no matter what. And I pulled it off, but I was mad. You know, like Wyatt and Kelly Kaiser and, and Miles, you know, Jab Nasty, you were on that group text that we've been on for like 14 years. You know, they all believed in me. They're like, you know, you know, my friends did, but just random people like, dude, what? No. He, I was I was surprised at how many haters like like there was. Now I wasn't like, I was, a hater. I, I just I didn't I. It came out of left field, you know, for me. Yeah, no, um, no, but, no, left field. That was normal. A lot of people that left field, but the people that knew it, that dude, I had this stuff going on. They were just like, dude, you know, rolling their eyes. Girls are probably the worst about it. Um, I, and here's another thing too. I was, I was I can't believe I'm even saying this. I was I was downtown. There was a bar called Bernie's here, and the guy's like, "What do you do?" Like, "Oh, I'm a seamstress." And this guy, you know, he, he's a, he's like a boat mechanic. He's like, "But you're a dude. Wouldn't you be called a seamster?" And I was like, <laughs> "Well, damn, that's a good question." So I googled it, and it was like non-gender specific. It was like a person who sews. But I was like, "Damn, waiter, waitress, you know, actor, actress, seamstress, seamster." But I I I still like being called seamster or seamstress. Right. I, mean, I don't know. It just blows people away. So is it something you're going to continue to do? Yeah, I'm going to do it. But not on unless, and I've actually got, this is a crazy thing. Because this industry is like, so, I'm, I don't, I, I just don't know hardly anything about it. I've actually got hit up by uh, one fashion designer in Puerto Rico. Big name. I'm not going to say the name, but it's a pretty big, she is a pretty big name in the, in the fashion in Puerto Rico has reached out um, and has inquired. And then I had another one from New York. I, and I'm just kind of like, uh, well, and, you know, I'll get back with you. I, I mean, I don't, I need to take a step, take a step back from it because it's just all come so fast that I don't even, I don't know. Like, I just don't know. Do you I, think- love the, I love making them. And I love, man, when these girls put these gowns on, it just, it's just funny how even like my two girls that are down here that were trying to trying the mom when I was fitting them, you know, these girls are like 22 years old. When you put this, their face lights up and they put a wedding gown on, you know, like it's, and then here's the thing with my gowns, I got pockets. I got two little pockets on the side, not, not big pockets, like a pack of Newports or something, but you know, maybe a vape pen, maybe eyeliner, maybe mascara, all that little, you know, like something a bride would want to feel like a little comfort item, you know, yeah. you know, everybody's like pockets. And then, then I talked to women, they're like, Oh my God, dude, I wish I had pockets in mine. You know, not not to put your hands or your phone in, but it's a little, just something little, you know. Huh. Interesting. So, I, I, it's you know, it's, it's, like, it's like I'm outside of the paradigm of what normal people do stuff. I'm like, I don't know, put pockets in it. 
and you know it's, it's almost like you know everybody's like you know gasping known as blasphemy to put a pocket in a wedding gown well mine got pockets you know <laughs> <laughs> and if that's you know, and, and people if people like it yeah i mean and and i think it's breaking the norms and that's something that that if we look at at what you've done in your life you you've kind of taken that approach anyhow whether you've meant to or not um i think you're a restless spirit um and you're you don't mind living that bedouin lifestyle where you know you're you're not anchored in one spot you know with a white picket fence and two and a half kids and you know that that typical thing that everybody expects um and yeah. i can relate to that yeah oh if anybody can you can right <laughs> you know uh, it, yeah and, and you know another thing sewing right it's very feminine in nature but every sailboat down here there's a there's a sewing machine on that on that boat because when you're out there and you got to do repairs you're going to use a sewing machine and it's amazing how many men actually sew down here uh with the upholstery there's a big huge shop right behind my boat where it's parked and they're in there they do upholstery from about seven in the morning to about midnight every single day and they got sales pulled up like and they're just it's funny how in the midwest you know grandma will sell your pants or mom will hem up your jeans or whatever but here in the maritime world sewing isn't so much a you know a, a, something that's on the feminine side you know right it's because it's more yeah. it's more industrial you yeah know. exactly but, and but it still takes the, that that same talent yeah and i'm actually surprised at how hard these how hard it is to do like you know absolutely that, it's you know just and then a, it was like building you know building something it's there's a lot to it that you don't realize you know, until you all of a sudden you got a roll of fabric in front of you and it's like, all right, let's start making patterns. And I can get a, there's a lot to it. There's like anything else that you just don't realize until you do it. Right. Yeah. You're just not grabbing a, a bolt of fabric and hanging it on a, on a mannequin and just, you know. And letting it rip. Yeah. That's not, yeah. And I think, yeah, it's not like that at all. Although it seems like it should be, but. Well, it's, you know, it's it, like it, somebody building a chassis. You know, okay, I'm going to, you know, I need, you just can't just bend pipe and then expect it to, to all come together, I, right? You got to, you got to plan it out because I, everything has to fit. And you know what? It's, it's crazy you say that because I was telling somebody, uh, I don't know, I think it might have been somebody that, you know, braces. And I was like, it's what I'm, dresses are the hardest thing to make. Wedding gowns are like above that. And I was like, it's it's like going to welding school and learning how to weld, and now you're going to build an IFS IRS rock crawler. What you what you're still welding, you know? But there's, I I missed the I missed the former toy. I missed the I missed the national progression of that. You know, I went straight to Shannon Campbell. You know, I I went from welding school to Shannon Campbell in my garage, and the, the alarm clock of life woke me up because it was a lot. It was you know, it was a lot. Right. And I didn't do that natural progression of like, oh, let me build a pair of shorts, or let me make a pair of shorts or a shirt. No, let me go to wedding gowns, dog. <laughs> you know, it's just I'm gonna push all in. <laughs> like uh, going to ranger school at 39, huh? Yeah, that was. I was just happy to. I'm just yeah, happy to go. It's right. just, uh, and I'll, I'll say this too. Uh, probably the hardest thing I ever did 
I wanted to do one more hard thing. And I tell you, Rich, I got to stop watching Discovery Channel because I get myself in so much trouble. But <laughs> when I, I, I want to do one more thing. And I, I went, I applied for a, uh, to be a test subject at our, at the Navy Experimental Dive Unit. And that down there, my friend, running on those treadmills, doing 100% max runs that were diving these tranks for like six hours. It was the most, it, I, the day one, I called my dad and dad was like, uh-oh, I know this call. And I was like, man, I don't know. I, I, I've messed up, but you know, I made it through. So I got, I got my one last hard thing to do, but that ex- experimental day, dive unit, best ranger, uh, you know, all that stuff was just, it's so, it's just funny how you, you don't know what you can do until you do it. And right. I was definitely pushing to the limits. So the only thing we haven't talked about that I know that you did or you were doing, I, I don't know if you're still doing it, is is podcasting. You, you yeah, started so a podcast on fishing. I did it in Panama City Beach and uh and I lost man, I was gonna move it down here and it's just so busy working and these podcasts, you know, the interviews are fun and you're talking to, you know, people you know, people you don't know and hearing everybody's story and it's awesome. And I was gonna move it here. But the editing takes so much time, I just couldn't do it. And there's legends of fishing down here. You know, like in the offshore fishing world and sport fishing, there's guys down here, at, you know, who, who discovered the drops and put sport fishing down here on the map. And the one that I've always wanted to do and talk to, uh, Jimmy, he died like two months ago. And I was like, son of a buck, man, I missed my chance. So... My, my next podcast I got going on now, I'm starting it, is it's called, you know, I told you earlier in the, in the Army, it's, you know, Ranger School. Either you, either you got a story or a tab, you know, because you wear the Ranger tab. Right. Um, Ranger School stories are so ridiculous, uh, and they're funny to hear. So my podcast is Ranger School, a story and a tab, meaning you went to Ranger School, you graduated. Let's hear, let's hear your story because you're so sleep-deprived and hungry and everything else that your body just does crazy stuff like you know uh, so my my next podcast is you know just hearing everybody's ranger school stories and because they're funny and the old school guys they'll be a little bit different than the new school guys but they're all going to have that common theme of like you know what their body was doing when they were standing there wait you know putting quarter you know acting like they're putting quarters into a, a a coke machine and it's really a tree and they're just standing there putting standing next to a tree with their you know, hitting the buttons, you know, because right. they're, you're droning, you know, you're actually sleepwalking, um, you know, people, dudes walk off cliffs and like, it's dangerous because you're just so, you just, you just go on autopilot and you just, you know, sleep. Um, so, so there's, there's one other guy that I know, um, used to spot for Hal Frost back in the rock crawling days and Dougie, Doug, um, I'm going to screw up his last name. But it's uh, like Keys. Uh, oh, Kai Swider. Kai Swider. Kai yeah, Swider. I know, yes. I know him. Doug K. Doug yep. K. From Pirate. So I asked him because yeah. he's he's still friends. You know, we're friends on Facebook and stuff. And he, you know, he did the whole special forces thing too. And I asked him. I said, "So, you know, do you know Rob?" And he goes, "Oh, damn, yeah." <laughs> so, um, I thought he has a pretty interesting story too. And uh, I hope to get him on here at some point because I think it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting story that, you know, he was a wild, yeah. crazy. Yeah. And it's funny because he was around early, like early days of all the, the rock crawling stuff. Absolutely. Um, and then he got, I mean, he, he, 
he can't, he kind of got more career, career oriented and, and kind of had to put us up to the side, you know? Right. Um, uh, yeah, but oh, Doug K. Yeah. Doug Kaiswetter. Kaiswetter? Can't remember. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah he I, lived that's a lot closer than I could get. <laughs> yeah. He lives in, like, out there in Southern Pines, right outside Fayetteville. Right. So cool. Um, what else do you have going? I, you're the kind of guy that's going to have something crazy planned or is going to come into the mind. I guess it's that, that discovery channel stuff, but you know, what, yeah. anything else that you're going to, So I got the only thing I got going on right now is I'm both in We're going to take me and my buddy. We're going to go take the take big boat down to Costa Rica and the transmission went out and I then I nothing on this boat small. Detroit 671s, these big transmissions, and all we get the transmission out, like I cut the floor underneath the couch and lift it straight up. And I just, I've been putting it off and putting it off. And it's to the point now where I'm just going to fix it, you know, because it's been, it's been that down like three or four months. I'm just going to fix it. Um, so we, I'm going to, I'm going to charter this boat a little bit on the side. Uh, but, you know, I got opportunities, you know, at Costa Rica coming up or, or uh, Puerto Rico, those, jo- there's fishing jobs there and there's, the fashion stuff and San Juan and Puerto Rico is really, really nice compared to St. Thomas. I love St. Thomas, but Puerto Rico is, you know, it's actually like not third world. Um, so I got that going on. Uh, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like in limbo right now. I'm really kind of seeing what our season down here is going to do because, you know, with, with my retirement stuff, I don't have to really work that much. But what I found out is being retired. Isn't that great? Because, guess where all your friends are at work and all you, end up, you know, then you just send up, you just sit around all day. It's, it's like skipping school, man. That's fun for a minute, but then all your, you know, your buddies are in school, you know? Uh, so being busy and having some kind of schedule, I gotta, I gotta do that because otherwise I'm just going to waste the way down here. Um, but yeah, I've got a couple of things going on with that. Uh, I'm trying to get, I was trying to get Kyle, my son to come out of here and you know, Rich and and I was telling Wyatt Pippen and, and those guys this is like never never discount how much influence you can have in anybody's life at any given time doing any given thing because Kyle my son is the only person I know who from ten years old running on his K or his little CRF fifty at KOH in two thousand nine and racing next to me you know at dirt I got videos and you're waving the green flag I. Kyle was so into that stuff from 10 years old. All he wanted to do is go to fab school and that little shit went and did it. And now he's doing some big stuff. And it's just cool to see, you know, all this stuff that we were doing and hey, this, this kid hanging out with you and me and all these other dudes, how much it changes life, you know? Right. And it's just, so he's doing good things. So I've kind of backed off getting him out here. Um, he cold calls these shops and gets these jobs. And, you know, oh, you raced the Baja 1000 on a dirt bike? You know, because you raced in Nora. And like, oh, you've been to King of the Hammers? You know, oh, you've been to SEMA? Oh, oh, you know Dave Cole and Big Rich? Like, you know all these people that people in Pennsylvania think they only know? And then here comes this 21-year-old kid. Oh, yeah, I've done all that stuff. Here's all my pictures. And so every, every time you walk into a shop, and then, oh, you went to the fab school? You know, like, people, people, these fab shops on the East Coast know what the fab school is. And, uh, He's get he's getting he's doing great things and I'm super proud of that kid, you know he's definitely and he's so he, you think talent he has so much talent and he has the one thing that you can't teach like what we talked about earlier Rich is passion 
he loves welding. He loves motorsports. He loves tube chassis and dirt bikes. He loves all that stuff. And he has the passion for it. But then what he has too is a natural talent. And then on top of that, he's got formal training, you know, and dude, I was like, bro, you're going to be good forever. Yep. And if you're not, I'll buy you a welding truck and you go to Midland, Texas and do that for a couple of years. <laughs> <and> just pipeline <laughs> weld. Just burn 78 up out there and make big money. But you know, he's, I'm, he's good. And it's all because of guys like you and it's guys like, you know, the, all, the whole crew that we hung out with for all these years, you know, right. You know, he grew up with this stuff. So it's just cool to see all that. Man, I got that. I got some great videos, man. You and those, he did an interview at the D- D- Tucson race. A guy walks up the announcer. What's your name? That's oh, Kyle. You know, <laughs> his little fire suit. And it was all because of the stuff that you guys were doing. And we were just tagging along, having a good time too. You know, that's awesome. Hey, it's, it's what gets us is friendship. You know, the only reason I ever did any of this stuff really was to hang out with my friends because my army guys weren't doing it. So I had right. to go hang out with all the other dudes, you know, I was on my internet friends, really, you know, and then the make-believe well, internet friends. Yeah. Well, then you find out, damn, you all do, you all guys do exist, you know, it's just, it's funny how all that stuff starts. And then, you know, to see a young kid get the influence so greatly and it's, it's pretty cool. So again, like I said, you know, for anybody, never discount how much influence you can have on any person's life saying or doing any little thing at any given time. And it just changes their whole, you know, their whole thing. Yeah. I feel that, I feel that's my legacy. That my legacy was bringing people together and then hopefully, um, awakening a passion in, in some to, to continue in the sport, you know, one way or another or the industry. And that's kind of why I do the podcast as well is to tell everybody's story you know, with people that have passion and why they're, why they are who they are and where they're at. And hopefully that awakens in somebody else. And let me tell you this, man. And the, my mom who she passed 2015, but she would always, she was come to, she lived in Phoenix. So we would, she'd always need, she met us at the Tucson race. There was another one up north of Phoenix somewhere. We did this little track that I think, I think we showed up late or something like right at, the driver's meeting that we pull up but um the very first time my mom ever rode in my uh, any of any of my off-road cars was and then she you know she did the finish line at parker and the blue water all the she was koh um but the only time she ever rode in any of the race cars was at that race north of phoenix like in 2012 or something and i took her in that little lap and the picture i have of her is amazing and it's all it was at a dirt riot race you know that's of awesome. all the races she ever went to, she met us in Mexico for the Nora one time. And she was like every KOH that I did until she passed, she was there. You know, all those, dirt, but the only time was at a, was at a dirt riot race, you know? So I'll never forget that. The picture I have is, is amazing. That's great. But yeah, I, I was that. And I thought, yeah, we showed up late and like the driver's meeting, I got out of the car and I didn't even unload the car. We got out of the truck and just went right to the driver's meeting right in front of the podium. <laughs> but, yeah, I got I still got all my dirt riot trophies, man. We used to clean up the little rhino back in those days. Yep, that's cool. Well, Rob, if uh, if there's anything else that uh, that comes up and uh, hits like the uh, the fashion designer, we're gonna have to have a a second interview so that we can discuss those things because I I love how you. I just love how you have a passion for each one of these things that you've done and you just go for it. Um, I've always been 
I've always been of the mind is you never fail unless you don't try. Yeah, man. You got to at least, you got to try. If yeah. you fail, you know what? It is what it is. Yep. You know, you know? If the only failure is never trying. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it amazes me. And the older I get, the more I see it. I mean, people just don't try. That nope, a thousand. Nope, uh, uh-uh, nope. I'm not gonna do it. They're just, they're just so scared of failure. I'm, yeah. like, I'm not. I fail all the time. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I spent 23 years as a promoter, failing a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I yeah, stuck with it. <laughs> experience is what you get when you don't give what you want. Hey, before we get off here, man, I just want to send a shout out because I, I actually. You know, bringing up Pistol Pete earlier, the last time I saw you when you came out of Panama City Beach when fishing was when Steve uh, Pete was in that accident and 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 uh, uh, and, and you know and, and got killed. And you know, I think Pete Soren was kind of the rock donkeys and the desert racing. Like he was like our little mediator between the two. And and I I got a picture of of him. I had a rock donkey across my samurai buggy at Parker. Or maybe it was Vegas Arena, and I had a picture of him standing there because you know he he's the one who named us that. Right. And it, it's just, I always thought I always thought the world of that dude, and uh, the fact that talking to you, the last time I saw you is when we, we were all going up to eat that night when we got the, we we all found out. That's right. Uh, so so I man, forgot that that's when we pistol. found out. Yep. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we were going to eat that Cajun place, I think. So yeah, so hey, he's one of the good ones, man. Yes. You know? Yeah, he he was one of those guys that you know you loved him or hate him, there was like no in between, I, and I think that once people got to know him better, especially on the rock, you know, the guys on the KOH racing side, you know, the rock rock racers or rock crawlers, they under they got to understand him better because at first he came on like, oh, you guys just want to be like me, and what he meant was you know you guys want to race trophy trucks, you want to race at the highest level, and that's true. We just may not have wanted to do it like Pete did, but we all yeah. we all aspired to do what he was trying to do, and that's yeah. And that was where the misunderstanding came. And I even told him that at the fire at KOH when he first said that, and a hundred people looked at him like, "You're an ass," you know. And it was like, "No, no, no." What he means is, you know, yeah. <laughs> but oh, yeah, oh my he was god, a, what a character, man! Yes, what a absolutely. Character. Well, Rob, thank you so much for spending the time today and uh, talking with me and and going over all the things that you've done in life. I know we could probably spend another four hours really diving deep into all of these stories and stuff, but you know what? We'll leave those stories for when we're back on a boat together. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, and, and, and thanks because I'm way out here and, you know, I'm so far detached from that part of the, of my you know life the off-road stuff that is good to it's still kind of be like oh yeah what's going on big dog we, we remember you so it's definitely my pleasure having you and and rich i've known you for years man your dear friend and uh i'm looking forward to seeing you i hope you guys do come out everybody else comes out let's come on out yep we're gonna you know, do it uh we'll go fishing go have some beers and we'll talk about how cool we were at one point <laughs> and we'll make uh, sure shelly doesn't bring bananas yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> we had to have oh somebody God. to blame for our boat ride that day. <laughs> yeah. God, I hate that stuff. Uh, oh. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Rob, and uh, take care and good luck on any endeavor that you you decide to to pursue.
Well, I appreciate it, Rich. And same to you. And and give give Shelly a big hug for me. And and uh, man, hopefully I see you soon, brother. Yep. Hopefully. Take care. All right. All right. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.